Uh, we are going to be jumping into God's Word this morning, so go ahead and get prepared for that. If you're a note taker, take out your note stuff. Uh, if you need your Bible, we are going to be in what book? Good guess. You're probably wrong, but that's a good guess anyways. Um, last week in our, in our perusal of the book of Acts, we um, started a new series entitled World Changing Power, and if it's power that interests you, then the book of Acts is the book for you because you are going to, as you go through the book of Acts, which I hope many of you are doing at home on your own, uh, reading it uh, yourself since we're not going every verse and uh, tearing it apart, but uh, as you go through, you are going to find example after example of God's miraculous power. Almost every page that you turn in the book of Acts, you're gonna find it. So let me just give you a quick rundown of a few of those things. If you were to start in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 opens up with this amazing scene, right? There's a sound of a violent rushing wind that interrupts a prayer service, and then the Holy Spirit falls powerfully upon them. There are uh, something that looks like flaming tongues resting above the heads of the disciples, and they begin to speak in languages they have never learned so that everyone out there understands the gospel in his own language. And on that day, as as the Holy Spirit falls upon the church, infusing them with power, 3,000 souls are swept into the body of Christ that day. You turn the page, you go to chapter three, Peter and John are on their way up to the temple to worship, and what do they find? A guy who's begging. He's been lame from childhood, and they reach out to him and heal him. We find him leaping and dancing on the steps because God has healed him miraculously. You turn the page, and you go to chapter five, and you find out that God's miraculous, overwhelming power isn't just for nice, happy things like healing, but Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead where they stand by the power of God because they lied to the Holy Spirit and to the church. As we go on through chapter five, it continues. The sick are healed, demons are cast out. Later in chapter five, prison doors open and chains fall off and Peter and John are released from prison and they can't find them when they go to look for them in the morning. In chapter eight, we see Philip in Samaria. What's he doing? He's casting out demons and healing the sick as he preaches the gospel. We continue in chapter nine. Philip, again, he is, he is uh, taken to a road uh, out in the desert where he meets this Ethiopian guy and shares the love of Jesus with him, leads him to Christ, baptizes him, and as soon as he comes up out of the water, what happens to Philip? In the only time we've seen this outside of Star Trek, he is beamed to another city instantaneously by the power of the Holy Spirit. Later on in chapter nine, there's another paralyzed guy who gets healed. Uh, later on in chapter nine, yet again, this woman named Tabitha, or also known as Dorcas, dies, and she is raised from the dead in the book of Acts by the power of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 12, Peter miraculously is delivered from prison where they were about to execute him and once again prison doors open and he is delivered. In chapter 12 we see the dark side of this happening again as God's power is unleashed to um, punish 
someone. As Herod is struck dead, as he is accepting the worship of people, it says that he falls down dead and is eaten by worms. It literally says he was eaten by worms and died. It doesn't say he died and was eaten by worms, just for you to picture. In chapter 13, we have this guy named Elamis. He's a magician. He's a, a practicer of the dark arts. He is struck blind because he's trying to interrupt the power of the gospel. And so he's struck blind by the power of God. In chapter 14, there's another man who has been paralyzed for his whole life who walks again and doesn't just walk but leaps and dances. In chapter 16, we have demon that is cast out of a slave girl in the city of Philippi and revival breaks out because of what happens there. Also in chapter 16, another prison delivery. This time the doors don't just open, but the chains fall off and the jailer and his whole family come to know Christ and the church is born in the city of Philippi. As we move on, we go to chapter 20 and in chapter 20, there's this guy named Eutychus. Now I want you to pay special attention to this. This guy named Eutychus, he's a young man and he's there while the sermon is being preached on a hot day and he's sitting in the windowsill in an upper floor window and the sermon gets a little long and he falls asleep and falls out the window and dies and that's what happens when you fall asleep when somebody's preaching <laughs> just so you know falls out the window and dies they rush down to the street pick up his dead body and the, and the apostles pray, and he is raised from the dead. Unbelievable. So, you know, if you happen to fall asleep during a sermon and that happens to you, there's still hope. You never know. Chapter 28, as we wrap up the book of Acts, Paul, after surviving a shipwreck, is putting some wood into the fire when he is bitten by a poisonous viper and God delivers him from that viper bite. We just see it over and over and over and over and over again. I didn't hit everything. Those are just some of the highlights in the book of Acts. God's miraculous, unbelievable power. That is a lot of power. Now, before we go on, I want to tell you a fable. Once upon a time, there was a very rich and powerful man. He owned one of the largest and most profitable companies in the whole world. And he had two twin grandsons. On their seventh birthday, this man took his twin grandsons to New York City and into New York City to the greatest toy store in the world, FAO Schwartz. And as he got to the toy store, he allowed them to tour all the floors of the store, see all the magnificent stuff, all the amazing things, and then he gathered them together and he got down on one knee and he said, now boys, it's your birthday. And for your birthday today, I'm going to allow one of you to choose anything in this store and I will buy it for you and you will take it home today. The other one will not be getting a birthday gift from me today. But instead, when he turns 18, he's going to inherit my company. And I'm gonna let you guys decide who does what through a simple game of rock, paper, scissors. And so the boys face off. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. And they tied the first time. 
So they do it again. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. And they tie the second time. They're twins. They think alike. Five straight ties. Until finally, twin number one decides to go with paper and twin number two goes with rock. Twin number one wins. And the grandfather looks at him and says, what would you like to do? You have a choice. And he says, I want that remote control airplane that's flying around the store. He says, it will be yours. And he gets them the airplane and they take it home. And that little boy on that day had an amazing two hours playing with the coolest toy he had ever had until he crashed it into a tree and destroyed it. And exactly 11 years later, later. His brother and he turned 18, and his brother became the CEO and owner of one of the largest, most profitable companies in all of the world. Now, don't worry. He didn't forget about his brother. He hired him to be a chauffeur. (laughs) It's easy, isn't it? to get distracted by the flashy things that we see in the right here and now and desire those things above things that are far, far more valuable but maybe not so enticing in the moment. We can easily, when we see those flashy things in the here and now, lose sight of the big picture, can't we? And when we think of power in the book of Acts, we almost always think of miracles, Because the book is filled with miracles, as I just demonstrated. But as great as those miracles were, their impact was relatively limited, relatively shallow, and relatively brief. That guy, Eutychus, the wicked guy who fell asleep while he was listening to a sermon, he fell down, he died, he was raised again. Have you ever heard about what happened later? He died again. It was an exciting moment. Just didn't last that long. And you know what happens with Peter and John? We keep seeing them throughout the book of Acts getting released from prison. Peter, John, Paul. And you think of Peter and Paul in particular multiple times where they are released from prison miraculously. It's a powerful, amazing story. And do you know what happened with those guys? Eventually, they were both imprisoned again, and they were both executed. It's not to take anything away from the miraculous thing that God did when he released them and the chains fell off. It's still an incredible miracle. It's still the power of God. All I'm saying is that it was relatively short-lived and it made a relatively small impact. I think one of the things that's so exciting to us about the miracles of Scripture is that we envision those things in our own lives and how many times have you or I thought, man, I could really use a miracle now. There have been so many times when I thought there's just something I need and it's beyond my power and I need it now. And I can envision myself having that kind of power to be able to just speak miraculous power into existence. Wouldn't you love to be able to raise the dead? I mean, how many people have wept at a funeral home thinking if only I could have one more day with this loved one? 
Wouldn't you love to be able to just speak a word and take power over the demonic and cast out demons? Wouldn't you love to be able to just touch someone and heal a person who is desperately sick? Wouldn't you love to be able to strike your enemies blind or even dead? I know you would. Yeah, I know you're looking at me like, oh, that's pretty. No, I know you would. See, we see all that stuff happening in the book of Acts and we want to know How do I activate that kind of power in my life? I want that kind of power too. But when that happens, we're like the kid in the toy store who can't take his eyes off the remote control airplane. Because we're fascinated with power. And we have a tendency to miss the point. We're fascinated with what's happening in the moment and we have a tendency to miss the big picture, but it's interesting that with all of those miracles throughout the book of Acts and all of those miracles throughout the gospel, that never once are we given any kind of a step-by-step process that would teach us how to perform those miracles. Never once, even when Jesus heals, right? How many times does Jesus heal a blind guy in the gospels? Over and over and over again, someone who's blind receives their sight. And I'm not sure he ever did it twice in the same way. One time he speaks, one time he touches, one time he spits and makes clay and rubs it in the guy's eye. One time the guy has to go wash his face at a pool. Over and over again, it's done differently. And we talked about this before, but I think one of the reasons for that is because God knows that what we're looking for is a formula for power. And if we could just go, these are the four easy steps to healing the sick, that's what we would want to do. These are the four easy steps to raising the dead, that's what we would want to do. But it's interesting that nowhere in the Bible are we giving that secret formula, how to perform miracles like these. There's no recipe to follow. And I think that that's at least partly because God knows we are distracted by temporary moment-changing power when he wants us to live our lives marked by eternal, world-changing power. Now, my purpose this morning is not in any way to diminish the significance of those miracles or to diminish the significance of miracles that God does today. If you are somehow under the impression that God saved all his miracles for the book of Acts and and the Gospels, and God's not doing any miracles today, you don't know the God of the Bible. Because he hasn't lost any power, he still has all authority, he's still sovereign over everything, and God is still doing miracles today, Amen? amen? God's still working powerfully today. And yet, If you think that's the point, you missed the point. I'm not here to minimize these incredible works of God. They're works of God. But I am here this morning to kind of redirect our vision away from the flashy, temporary, moment-changing power of God so that we can get our eyes on God himself who changes lives for eternity. You see... His purposes are higher than our purposes. His understanding is greater than our understanding. Just in case you think I forgot my Bible, I didn't. Turn to Isaiah. Go to your Old Testament. I told you you'd be wrong if you turned to the book of Acts. Go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. 
It's uh, toward the back part of your Old Testament. And when you get to Isaiah, I want you to go to chapter 55. And for some of us, this will be a well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 55. But through the prophet Isaiah, God gives us some powerful insight here, beginning in verse 6 of Isaiah 55. Let me read it to you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Verse eight, my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is doing something in your life much bigger than you understand. God is doing things all around you that you don't know anything about. God is investing in processes where you are and among the people that you're with that are going to culminate in great things that you have never even begun to imagine or envision because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His purposes are greater than our purpose. So the power to heal the sick or open prison doors would be exciting to possess, but even that kind of power pales in comparison to the power to transform a life. So what does Isaiah tell us to do? He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Somehow this power that we so long for, this world-changing power, is not found in a formula, it's found in God himself. We're supposed to seek the Lord while he may be found. We're supposed to, according to Isaiah, call upon the Lord when he is near. We're supposed to forsake our sin and draw near to the Lord. It's in the context of intimately walking with God that his power is unleashed in a world-changing way. Now, let's look at an example, and this is from the book of Acts. So go back to the book of Acts, and we're gonna stop off for a moment in chapter six. Because in Acts chapter six, we talked about this before, we won't reread the whole passage, but in Acts chapter six, what we see is this, uh, this division arising within the young church where some of the Greek widows seem to be being ignored in the way that they're being taken care of and that raises some racial tension and it raises some uh, class tension and some difficulty among the people, right? And so um, the apostles choose seven Greek men to take responsibility for the taking care of all of the widows. This is an important role. This is the first official office ever given in the church other than the office of apostle. And so these apostles now are, are making these men officially um, empowered to act as ministers on their behalf while they do other things, the teaching of the word and prayer. And so... Um, this is a very, very important role. These men are going to become the first deacons in church history. And what are the necessary qualifications for these men? Acts chapter six, beginning in verse three. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, 
Nicanor, Timon, um, Permanus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. This is a listing of these men that they were chosen. What kind of qualities were they looking for in these men? Verse three again, um, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. They have to be full of the spirit of God and wisdom. It doesn't say find some guys with administrative experience. It doesn't say find some guys who are really um, charismatic and great with relationships, you know, people, people. It doesn't say find some guys who, who are, um, uh, have experience uh, serving tables. No, it says look for some men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The power that it takes to minister in the name of Christ is only provided by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse five. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man, what? Full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on and lists the other men that were chosen as well. Stephen, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. What made Stephen and the others qualified for this role. It wasn't their charisma, it wasn't their fame, it wasn't their power, it wasn't their wealth, it wasn't their experience. It was their personal relationship with God. It was because they were filled with the Spirit. These men were men who sought the Lord. They were men who drew near to God, men who forsook their sin and followed after the Lord, just like Isaiah tells us to. They were known for their relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's what made them stand out. Their wisdom came from God. It wasn't an earthly wisdom. Their impact was made by God. Their purpose was God's purpose. Therefore, their priorities were God's priorities. And God used these men and others like them to change the world. And at the end of chapter six, as you may know in the story, Stephen, one of these seven, catches the attention of some powerful Jewish leaders who don't like what he's doing. And they want to put a stop to Stephen's ministry, which is just growing and God is using him in powerful ways. And so they confront him and they try to stop him and they end up debating him in the public square. And because he knows the word and because he is filled with the spirit, he outduels them in the debates and makes them all look silly. And now they're mad. And so at the end of chapter six, they falsely accuse him of blasphemy and they charge him and drag him before the council and they get false witnesses to say that he was blaspheming. Now, does this sound familiar? This is exactly what they did to Jesus. This is how they stopped Jesus or so they thought. They, they got false witnesses, they accused him of blasphemy and they dragged him before the council for a hearing. He was dragged before the council and they said to him, these accusations have been made. Now defend yourself. And he spends 53 verses of chapter seven not defending himself, but defending the gospel. He preaches the gospel to the council of priests and he wraps it up by saying, you're the ones who killed the Messiah. His blood is on your hands and you must repent if you're to be saved. Now, how do you think that went over with them? 
They dragged him out of town and stoned him to death right there. And so ends Stephen's short story in the Bible. Doesn't that make you want to just follow Stephen's example? But here's the thing. That's not actually where Stephen's story ends. If we turn over to chapter 8, all of chapter 7 is dedicated to his preaching of the gospel and then his murder. And then in chapter 8, look what it says beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Sounds bad, right? Stephen stands up full of the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel, ends up dead, and the persecution arises. This guy, Saul, who, by the way, shows up later in the book of Acts, this guy, Saul, is so angry that he wants to destroy the church entirely, and he's given the authority to do so, and he starts going from town to town and trying to wipe out Christians wherever they are in the whole area of Judea. This is not good. You say, Pastor, if, if, you're, if you're hoping to get us excited about acting like Stephen and thinking that's gonna work out well, uh, you're not doing so well. Okay, fair enough. Except notice verse four. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. You see, We've talked about this multiple times before. What was God's plan? What was God's purpose for this young church? Maybe we could read it again. Turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just in case you forgot. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. God outlines his purpose as Jesus challenges us as his church, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And there they stayed in Jerusalem and Judea until the persecution arose, the persecution that was connected to Stephen. And when that persecution arose, verse four says they scattered from that area, and what did they do? They preached the gospel wherever they went, and the church exploded into these outside areas. Look at verse five. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Philip, another one of the seven, goes down to Samaria, why? Because they're chasing him out of Jerusalem. And he goes down to Samaria to save his hide. And when he gets down there, what does he do? He preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. What did Jesus say? You'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And now the gospel is finally reaching Samaria. And that begins the story of an amazing life from this guy named Philip that God used to change the world. Remember, Philip gets sent to the Ethiopian eunuch, shares the gospel with him. He gives his life to Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized with water. He heads down into Africa and brings the gospel to the continent of Africa. 
One of the oldest churches in the world outside of Jerusalem today is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which traces its roots all the way back to this Ethiopian eunuch found in the book of Acts, who Philip witnessed to. It all started with a man more interested in seeking God's purpose, more interested in drawing near to God than he was in saving his own skin or seeking his own purpose. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And his purpose is to change eternity while our purpose, all too often, if we're honest, is to change our circumstances in the moment. Paul, this guy Saul, gets saved. It's a great story. You should read it. Becomes Paul. The Apostle Paul. And Paul is given the miraculous power of an apostle. And God miraculously delivers him time and time again. As you read the rest of the book of Acts, it's the story of Paul. And you see God doing amazing things. And God keeps rescuing him. He rescues him from not one, not two, but three separate shipwrecks. Like, I don't know how many times you need to be in a shipwreck before you say, maybe sailing is not my thing. <laughs> three separate shipwrecks he's saved from. The snake bite that I mentioned earlier, he's saved from. He gets stoned multiple times. And when I say he gets stoned, I mean biblically speaking. He gets stoned with stones multiple times and God delivers him. Some of you have been stoned in other ways and God's delivered you too and you should be grateful. <laughs> he, he gets imprisoned and God gets him out of prison. He, he, he has to come up against powerful men and God gives him power over powerful men. It's amazing how God protects Paul throughout the rest of the book of Acts but in the end, he sits in a Roman prison again. This time, undelivered. The prison doors do not open miraculously. The chains do not fall off this time, no matter how much he sings to God and follows the map to the miracles. And eventually, they came and got him and chopped off his head. All that miraculous power did not save him from that. Why? Because that miraculous power wasn't for his purposes. It was for the purpose of God. But do you know what God did through him while he was in prison waiting for his head to get chopped off? He wrote half the letters of the New Testament from a prison cell. And how did Paul feel about this persecution and ultimate execution that was coming his way that he knew was going to take place because the Spirit had told him? Well, in his second letter to Timothy, which is the last thing we have written from Paul, the way it is portrayed in 2 Timothy is that he, he's sitting in the Roman prison, he's writing this letter to his protege, Timothy, and he's basically saying, the Lord has shown me that my, I've come to the end of my road on earth. They're gonna come get me and I'm gonna die, and I know that. And here's what he says. Turn over in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. If you're in the book of Acts, it's several books to the right. After you pass 
most of the letters of Paul, before you get to Titus, you'll find 1 and 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 6 through 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's what Paul says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's life, just like Stephen's life, was so impactful, not because he had the power to do temporary miracles, but because his life was surrendered to the eternal purpose of a world-changing God. And the rewards of a life like that last forever. Let me read it to you again. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who has loved his appearing. The life of true impact, life of true world-changing power is a life of surrender. Surrender to the Holy Spirit and the purposes of God. So let me close by asking you a question. Are you, you personally, are you living for your purposes and inviting God to come and help you in your purposes? Or are you living for God's purpose and asking him to include you in what he's doing? Seems like a small difference. It's the difference between being a world changer and being somebody who just showed up in the story. Are you living a world changing life? Or are you just playing with a remote control airplane? Let's pray together. God, as we think about your word and the challenges that we've seen in it today, we confess that we are distracted by the shiny things. We are interested in temporary power and, and, uh, and in seeing you do amazing, miraculous things in our midst right now today. But at the same time, God, we ask that you would make us people who are so interested in you that we would be seeking you and not just your power. <clears throat> Father, fill us with your spirit. Help us to surrender to you and therefore to live out your purposes and your plan above our own purposes and our own plan. For your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your thoughts higher than our thoughts. Help us to surrender to the person of the Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.